G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. And we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast, Acast, and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. We really appreciate a couple of minutes of your time to do that. Joining Brian and myself in the, our virtual studio, we're going to talk to Dr. Laura Cole, one of our lecturers here in emergency and critical care at the Royal Vet College. Laura, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. And uh, what we what we thought we were going to talk about is um, revisit something we, we, we touched on a, a couple of years ago uh, in the podcast, but uh, the point of care ultrasound, because it's one of your your uh, your passions um, and um, and also something you, you've uh, recently published on that we'll probably get to get to that at a um, at some point as well. So so maybe um, I could first ask about the use of sort of point of care ultrasound in the emergency. So there's 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 sort of a, a variety of different protocols um, that have been sort of developed for um, using point ultrasound, particularly with the with the lungs. Do you want to um, uh, sort of expand upon that, please? Yeah, sure. Um, so. I think that um, point-of-care ultrasound, particularly uh, point-of-care thoracic ultrasound, really has um, it kind of expanded in kind of, yeah, I think the last 10, even more, you know, five years, the literature that's out there, you know, more and more studies um, reporting kind of different protocols and kind of different um, findings and utilities of point-of-care ultrasound. And um, I think that it's, the protocols it's important to be aware of them um, because, you know, we all like to, you know, follow protocols. You know, we have our kind of various manuals that tell us step by step how to do things. Um, and the kind of different protocols, I think, will vary depending on your, like, uh, institution. Um, and so one's just to kind of, like, you know, come to the forefront of my mind. You know, the original was the kind of TFAST. Um, so that was kind of developed for focused assessment in trauma, but then that's sort of been expanded to trauma tracking and, you know, um, triage, or should I say triage and tracking. Uh, and that was just looking at two sites on the, um, on either side of the chest wall. And actually, um, it also includes that diaphragmatic hepatic view, which is part of your um, AFAST. And that was a kind of classic classic one, you know, looking at two points on the chest wall. And then since then, um, you know, there's been various uh, protocols uh, discussed in the literature. So there's the, the VET Blue, which assesses four points on each side of the hemothorax. And this is meant to correspond to different lung fields. Uh, and then you've got this um, sliding lung technique uh, where essentially you examine each hemithorax um, by sliding the probe, you know, dorsal to ventral, and then therefore you're examining kind of all of the um, intercostal spaces. And one such um, study that included this um, technique was uh, quite, you know, catchy uh, and, and term acronym that um, has been sort of taken from human medicine is the ABCDE protocol for trauma patients. And there, um, that was an interesting uh, technique um, or protocol, should I say, because they emphasize not only looking at uh, like, you know, breathing and using this sliding lung technique for looking at the lungs, but also um, airways. And so they actually performed ultrasound of the um, uh, the ventral neck um, and circulation. So assessment of the heart and the great vessels, as well as uh, the D um, standing for disability, which was the um assessing the optic nerve in um, in trauma patients so it's really um is the very the very varying protocols out there um 
you know, moving on from the kind of the the original uh, kind of basic kind of tea fast. It does sound like there's there's, there's obviously quite a, a lot um, a, a lot out there. And so, how do, how do you know? I suppose which one necessarily to to use, or 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 um, should you use variations of of both of them, or, or why are there so many different sort of techniques published? Yeah, and I think that um, for me, it's not like one size fits all. Um, and you know, you could kind of see why perhaps you know the the vet blue and the sliding lung technique were developed because you know the, the T fast was only looking at two sites on the chest wall and one of those was the pericardial you know site so you're looking at the heart and the other one you know is the chest drain site so that's the only one bit of lung you're looking at so if you want to cover more areas then the vet blue great you're looking kind of four points and the sliding lung is suggesting well if you only look in the four points then you may miss bits in between and and so it's not not so much that i think that one protocol is better than another i think that it's um it should be a guide and really always when you're doing point of care ultrasound it's what is your clinical question and therefore what sites looking in what sites will help achieve the answer to this clinical question and so, so do you have like places that you would you would prefer to or, or techniques you prefer to look at say for example if you're looking for a pleural effusion or a pneumothorax for example or pulmonary edema yeah so i think that um with regards to uh, pleural effusion, again, just thinking a little bit about, um, uh, you know, gravity is that effusion is going to be more ventral. So you want the kind of that ventral dependent site. Um, and something that obviously these protocols, the most um, distal site is the kind of you scanning the costochondral junction, um, which if you think about it, it's not always, you know, it's most ventral. There's a little bit more uh, below that junction. So, um I would, yes, aim for one of the kind of the, the ventral sites on my hemithorax, having an appreciation of like where I am on, on the hemithorax, kind of what kind of intercostal space um, and you know, um, scan down um, to start at the costal chondral junction and then scan down. And there has been, um, I think, a paper and kind of publication um, that's pre- presented at um, EVEX last year where they placed the ultrasound probe um vertical as well as perpendicular because usually we place place our probe perpendicular to the um the ribs at this kind of pericardiodiaphragmatic site so um just you know cordial to the heart between kind of the heart and the diaphragm and this was shown to be beneficial in looking in for detecting kind of small volumes of pleural fluid which i thought was interesting and not a site that's actually specifically looked at in any of the techniques described and so, so if you were going to look at a pneumothorax, would you just do the um, um, the, you know, the the dorsal part of the of the chest? Yeah, I think um, pneumothorax, you know, air rises, so it's going to be the, you know the highest point of the chest. And I think you know something something really silly and like um, simple, but in that kind of setting, you may. Um, you may kind of forget it that when an animal is in so animal can present you know critically in sternal or if it's very critical it could present in lateral recumbency and not being able to kind of hold its own body weight and so being aware that you know when they're in sternal you know the most dorsal caudal point is you know that sort of um, uh, very dorsal but in um, when they're in lateral the kind of middle of the chest is actually the the highest point um so just sort of appreciating the 
where air is going to go is going to differ depending on the position of the animal. Maybe uh, as I was thinking, when, when we're talking about using uh, ultrasound in, in the emergency room, like we, we, we up until recently sort of only had one um, probe to use. And is there a particular um, probe that you, you should use? Or if you were going to start out, what, what, sort, of, what sort of probe um, should, you, should you think about using or being more familiar with? I think um, sometimes you have too much choice. And I know that, um, you know, I, I've been, uh, you know, worked with vets who've got their machine in front of you, various different probes, and they change, you know, between their cardiac and their linear and their microconvex code um, uh, probe. And um, for me, I, I think, yes, sometimes with linear, you can get a bit more detail. But I think for the questions that we want to ask in the emergency setting, I think a microconvex code, um, probe is like perfectly acceptable but i would say is you know adjusting your gain and your depth to kind of optimize your image so if you're trying to look for say a pneumothorax and um you know the the glide sign you need to be quite zoomed in to kind of see that um that pulmonary pleural line uh, moving excellent <clears throat> and um and if you um uh, so, so moving on because we, we just sort of spoke about, about uh, pleural effusions and and pneumothorax. So, so how about positioning for for pulmonary edema and, and um, aspiration pneumonia? Yeah, so I think that um, you know pulmonary edema and um, uh, aspiration. I guess that the the findings that you'll see on point of care ultrasound may be very similar. So. Mo may, both may present with um, a B lines. Now, if you have an animal that is clinical for, um, is in respiratory distress because of cardiogenic pulmonary edema, you'd expect that edema to kind of be, you know, throughout um, the lung fields. So, and, and studies have shown um, dogs with mitral valve disease that they, the number of B lines seen correlated with their kind of stage of disease. So if you saw kind of B lines um, you know, throughout um, in multiple sites, either side of the hemithorax, then um, you would be convinced that you're building up a picture that this patient had um, cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So I think the kind of more number of sites for, um, for observing uh, for detection of cardiogenic pulmonary edema would uh, be beneficial because that would help to kind of support your your theory um and i guess with aspiration um there's not that much out there with regards to point of care ultrasound and you know diagnosing aspiration um but if you know we're basing it on you know radiographic findings um with aspiration pneumonia then um animals normally like to aspirate in the kind of cranial middle lung lobes and um therefore making sure that we include those sites in our point of care ultrasound if we have a patient with kind of um, history of physical examination findings um, that could be compatible with aspiration. And can, can I ask Laura, so they talked about um, dogs and, and, and bee lines and, and sort of where to look for them, but has there been anything published in cats? So in cats, um, yeah, recent study where they looked at um, number of bee lines uh, relating to um, the presence of congestive heart failure. And they found that if you had more than one kind of vet blue site 
strongly positive, so kind of seeing confluent B lines, uh, combined with the blood like pro-BMP, so that kind of biomarker that we use to help detect um, atrial stretch uh, and therefore representative of, um, suggestive of uh, congestive heart failure. If you use those combined, you could feel more confident that that cat in the emergency setting had um, congestive heart failure. And and could I could I ask as well because I know you you know you know we, we we're very fortunate enough to work in a uh, a referral institution and and um, when we ask our cardiology colleagues to um, do an echo or take an an animal to for ultrasound obviously there's a lot of clipping that that happens um, what do, do you do you clip any of these patients that you see or or do you do you use different sort of technique to try and get the best image you can. Yeah, no, I um, I think that this is what kind of differs, um, differentiates a point of care ultrasound from a um, act, you know, a, a specialist image. You know, we are we are asking key, key clinical questions in an unstable animal that's going to help direct our our next steps. And in those cases, we um, we need to minimise stress as much as possible. So I don't I don't clip. I'll just um part the fur, um, apply um, uh, spirit and then you know, uh, lubrication to the, um, the ultrasound probe and you can get um, good enough um, quality images to kind of help with that um, diagnostic question. Oh, thank you. I, I just, I suppose, wanted uh, like a little clarification of, of that. Um, and and recently, Laura, that there's been seems to be quite a um, an explosion of sort of new terminology relating to um, lung point of care ultrasound. And, and maybe you could could help us with sort of what what those are. So, for example, like uh, you know, curtain signs or shred signs or um, at Z lines, things like that. I just wonder if you could if you could touch on those and and what they're what they're meant to or signify please yeah no sure i think um you know as i said as it's kind of evolving um we have been kind of recognizing different things on our point of care ultrasound other than you know just a um a glide sign to that movement of that uh pulmonary pleural line and you know a b line and um a lines um and i think it is important just to kind of clarify um what they mean or what what they kind of what they're what they're suspecting to represent um to kind of help um with you know reading the literature and also um uh, when performing uh point of care ultrasound and reviewing videos of point of care ultrasound so i think the curtain sign is kind of you know the latest kind of in world um, in word in, in the point of care um, world um and this is a tool potential tool and this is just based on a small um uh, case series, uh, I think published last year, where um, that may help improve the detection of a pneumothorax. And what this is, is there's it's kind of a normal anatomic finding. So this kind of vertical line that's created from the thorax to the abdomen. And you'll, you'll see that with the respiration, this kind of line will shift cordially during inspiration. So the curtain opens with inspiration. Um, so moving towards the abdomen and then closes. So it comes sort of back towards the thorax and expiration. And you see this right on that um, uh, boundary through, between the thorax and the abdomen. And what they've what they've shown in um in this kind of case series, I think of about six dogs, is that this this curtain 
changes um, in the presence of a pneumothorax. So you either, either the curtain moves the other way. So instead of opening on inspiration, it kind of closes. But there you have to have really someone telling you when the animal's breathing in and out and um, while you're watching your uh, screen. You can also have a double curtain. So essentially, instead of it just going in and in, in and out, you, the curtain kind of opens on both sides. Um, and I can kind of put the we can put a link to the to the paper because it has some nice videos of it in the um, in the notes uh, at the end of the the podcast because that may help illustrate it. And it's kind of you know suggesting that this may help detect. Um, pneumothoraces alongside the um, the absence of a glide sign thank you very much and and um so the other other ones um that i thought of like the shred sign yeah so the shred again is another um uh, a, fan, a fancy kind of term where it's essentially it does what it says on the tin it's kind of appears like when you put the scanner on the uh chest wall it looks like there's kind of an area of like something shredded away from that pleural line. Um, and this is like, a, um, represents this like a regular border between normal aerated lung um, and then a, um, an area of consolidation. Uh, and so it represents this kind of um, partial lung consolidation. Um, and the, a study looking at coughing dogs um, found that a shred sign was uh, more commonly seen in dogs diagnosed with pneumonia. So it had um, a high specificity. So if you saw that, you know, it was likely to have pneumonia, but it had quite low sensitivity, i.e. you could miss many cases of pneumonia if you just relied on this point of care finding alone. Um but I think to reiterate, you know, that that study is one study of coughing dogs. So it's unclear if we can kind of extrapolate this to you know other uh, clinical presentations or other species. And 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 then Laura, if you're if you're looking at for sort of consolidation of lungs, so what, what what do they look like, and and what does that what does that mean if you see that? So consolidation is um, another kind of a finding that has been thought to you know to represent. Um, uh, pneumonia and in, in, in that similar study the coughing uh, dog study um, air, um, animals that had consolidation more likely to have pneumonia or um, like a bronchopneumopathy um, but in the the study that um, recently published with some colleagues our most common cause of consolidation was um, was pulmonary neoplasia um, and well, the thing about consolidation is um, on recognition of it is it looks it looks very much like the liver. Like sometimes you think you've just scanned the liver, like, you you know, you're too far caudal and then you realize you're actually, you know, you know, the dorsal, mid dorsal thorax. And like, oh, well, actually, I can't I can't have the liver there. Um, and so it, so it can also be termed like hepatized um, lung. Um, and sometimes it can be difficult to differentiate it but what you try and look for is the um the kind of appearance of like air bronchograms that kind of um that are passing through that area of consolidated you know tissue like lung and and so so sorry you, you said it it so you um your study looked at uh, seeing a number of cases that had some poor neoplasia um and also pneumonia and anything else that it's been associated with or or so the main um, the main ones are um, from our study it was mainly um, neoplasia but we were obviously comparing uh, 
point of care ultrasound is CT. So you have to think about, you know, the, the population that go on to have a CT. Most kind of pneumonias are probably going to be diagnosed on radiographs and not need CT. Um, but other in the in the coughing kind of dog study, most were um, pneumonia or bronchopneumopathy. Um, and even in cases with bronchitis, um, it, well, sorry, bronchitis, it was more uh, like nodule lesions, which I think is another really interesting area that you can actually see this kind of hypo, so kind of low, um, like a more black appearance, circular um, structure with which looks like a beeline coming away from it. And um, that kind of nodular sign has been um, identified um, in dogs with neoplasia, as you'd, you'd kind of you know expect if you're looking for metastases, but also with um, pneumonia and bronchitis. And I think that's like super interesting because it, you know is it because there's some sort of you know plugging of those um, of those airways. So, so if you see the, some sort of areas of consolidation, do you, do you think that you need to do something more when you see that, like a, a, a different sort of imaging technique? Mm, I think that. Um, for me, like kind of seeing uh, consolidation, you have to, with anything, you know, with any diagnostic test is interpret it in light of the kind of clinical um, history and physical examination findings. Um, and, you know, if you've got a... Um, well, that's the tr tricky one. I was about to say a brachycephalic, but they also like to get nice lung lobe torsions, which can kind of have the same, the same appearance. So, um, if you had, you know, a case that had a, acute acute vomiting and then dyspnea, you um, you may you know, can build up a case that um, animal may have um, aspirated. But I think that with with the point of care ultrasound, if I see consolidation, I'm not making my diagnosis on that alone. I would definitely uh, prompt some further imaging. But if it if the clinical picture fitted with a, like a pneumonia, then maybe radiographs would be adequate. But if it's not really fitting with a kind of a you know a straightforward oh it's aspirated, then um, some more advanced imaging to kind of really work out. Um, where the consolidation, uh, what is affecting, and yes, whether that's kind of you know um, soft tissue um, or whether it is um, you know pulmonary infiltrate such as um, as pneumonia. Thank, thank you, Lauren. And and then the the other the other term that's come come up is the Z line. I imagine there's twenty six other lines that we could have, but. Um... The Z line. What's what's that about? Yeah. So this um this term again came up. I think at one of um abstract presentations and and um evex. I think it was last year or the, or the year before. And I think this is um an important line to be aware of because it may um it may sort of explain perhaps when you know we we see. And B lines at one one point, but perhaps and they're not there the next point when assessed by a different observer. Um, so the the Z line essentially they are vertical lines that arise from the um, the pleural line, but it's the parietal pleural line, so like thoracic wall side rather than the pleural line, and they they ex you know they're vertical, so they extend um, uh, distally, but they do not erase the kind of horizontal A lines underneath and do not extend to the periphery unlike B lines and you know the term has been given to these uh, these lines um, but we don't really know what the origin is but what we know is that 80% of the human population have um, some Z lines on point of care ultrasound and um, in this one um, uh, 
uh, one abstract um, presentation, they found like 100% of healthy shelter dogs had them. And why I think, even though, you know, they're not, they're not relevant, you know, if you, but knowing that their Z lines, not B lines, would um, ensure you're not in misinterpreting, um, you know, the animal of having significant alveolar interstitial disease. If you see these lines, if you can do those checks, okay, it doesn't erase the A lines, doesn't extend to the periphery, it's not a B line. It's a Z line. Maybe maybe that takes us on to like moving into where where does where does sort of pocus um, stop and radiographs for for diagnosing respiratory pathology sort of take over and are, are um, it, or is the field that we're we're trying to use pocus to avoid using radiographs as in to get a diagnosis or are we trying to help it to better utilize further um, advanced imaging or diagnostic imaging such as radiographs or, or CT to know which patients might benefit from from that so what what can we what should actually we do with pocus yeah um I think it's a really a good uh, question because I guess I'm not saying that point of care ultrasound should replace radiographs. Um, I think that point of care ultrasound um, has a utility and role in that initial emergent acute setting, as you said, to kind of help better direct um, next um, next steps. And you know, as it, it was performed with minimal stress to the patient rapidly, and you know, it should be a rapid clinical um, rapid assessment to ask answer key clinical questions, um, and there um you know for example you know an animal with trauma comes in dyspneic and you know on your list you have okay it's been hit by a car and it's dyspneic what am i going to be looking for i'm going to be looking for um things that i'm going to need to intervene with um very rapidly are you know pneumothorax um pulmonary contusions um you know diaphragmatic uh, um, rupture and um, any significant kind of um, hemothorax and on you know your point of care ultrasound can help you determine um, whether this this animal is um, dyspneic from any one or a combination of of above and um, a study comparing kind of CT to radiographs to ultrasound found when compared to CT, which is a gold standard, ultrasound was able to, um, was more sensitive for the diagnosis of pulmonary contusions. That doesn't mean to say that we only do that. My interpretation of that paper is not like, oh, well, don't worry, we don't need to do x-rays in trauma. It's either um, point of care ultrasound or CT. No, it was saying is that you you don't need to in that um, emergency setting an animal is quite dyspneic and you are happy that it um, doesn't have um, a pneumothorax or significant pleural effusion or you know intestines in its um, its thorax. If you see beelines bilaterally diffusely, you can be quite happy that this animal has significant pulmonary contusions. It can go in some oxygen and it can try and you know, recover from that without having to be positioned for x-ray. But that's not to say that I don't think it needs you know, x-ray or CT um, down the line because rarely you're just gonna have contusions in isolation. You know, We want to have a look at the, the ribs. Are there any evidence of rib fractures? Are there any evidence of spinal fractures? And also, um, and I know that, that that ABCDE protocol looked at 
um, scanning the the ventral neck and the trachea. But um, you know, airway airway trauma. I think in my hands at the moment, it, I'd be better be able to be detected on um, uh, radiographs or CT. So, 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 so I suppose you're saying that's a, a combination. Obviously, it's going to depend on the on the patient that you're you're looking at, and I, I suppose if there's obvious history of trauma, then you're going to I suppose look you know, interpret the imaging findings related to to that, which is I suppose um, uh, what 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 we all do. Um, well, hopefully, you know, use uh, our diagnostic imaging as, as uh, in, in, in light of the, the clinical picture of the, of the patient in, in question. So, so should we, I suppose one question I was thinking, when, you, when there are these studies like comparing, um, say, ultrasound to radiographs to, to CT, obviously, these imaging studies are done at a certain point in time, and, and pathology can change, I suppose, like pneumothorax. So, so I suppose, how do we interpret when you're comparing, say, um, a POCUS assessment of, of pneumothorax and then CT assessment? Does, does that, are there sort of questions raised in, in limitations about maybe the pathology did change from somebody having a look to a, a CT being performed or as it is a more of a dynamic situation? Mm, yeah, I think it's a really um, good point. And that was probably one of the, the biggest, um, like, you know, limitations of the study that we did is that, um, you know, we looked at um, animals that had gone on and had CT that had point of care ultrasound at admit. So I think kind of, you know, the medium time but like between the two was you know over 10 hours and obviously like pathology can change but you know it's um unless i guess the only case that you could probably whiz them from you know admit point of care to ct is in is maybe like a polytrauma because you you know do that early on um to look for any significant um a spinal trauma um and you know that is a real limitation the other thing is if you know if you've anesthetized them and you've given them ippv and then you're like oh well you've just caused your you know pneumothorax um in a in a lung that was probably a little bit fragile so i think that um yes you know there's going to be that limitation, but that's kind of limitation of a kind of clinical study. I think, so for the take home for me with regards to the studies, you know, comparing point of care ultrasound and radiographs and CT is that um, that point of care ultrasound, um, you know, has has a role at um, initial, you can, you can, it can help direct your your diagnostics and, and, and emergency management. And I also think it can help monitor and kind of track changes in your patient. But it's not, it should never be looked at in isolation without your kind of, you know, you wouldn't look at a blood result and say, okay, you know, this one value in isolation makes me diagnose this. Like it, it wouldn't. Um, you have to put it as part of the 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 whole picture with your um your physical exam and your um your history and then it may just mean that you just don't have to my thing i think is great about it is that you don't have to have that stress of putting an unstable animal like lying them flat you know or thinking am i going to sedate this really sick animal am i just going to pin them down because it's going to be safer than any sedation on the x-ray table like it it prevents you probably needing to do that in that kind of, you know, first couple of hours in that emergency setting, because you're either going to, you know, find something on point of care to direct you, or you're going to do a diagnostic and therapeutic thoracentesis, which I still feel has a place because, you know, I mentioned, you know, the glide sign, the absence of the glide and the, um, 
and the curtain sign for pneumothorax detection. But still, in my hands, in animals, and I'll give my you know excuse to panting dogs and um, you know small little chest size of cats. But I still struggle to be um, confidently say I have a, a pneumothorax on point of care ultrasound. And in any animal that has clinical um, symptoms and a compatible history. I still would, you know, do a diagnostic um, therapeutic thoracentesis um, and not fully rely on my point of care ultrasound. Good to know, um, and uh, or, or to note. So, so could you could you describe a little bit about what your what you actually looked at in um, in your study, please? Yeah, sure. So the um, the study that we um, undertook, so it was undertook at the, um, the RVC, we were looking at um, the vet bluers, that lung ultrasound protocol, so looking at four points on each side of the hemithorax. And what we were um, aiming to do is looking at... Um, and what I think, you know, interesting, it stemmed from a conversation with one of my colleagues where you know, with the more use of POCUS, we're diagnosing, you know, we, well, we're, we're, we're seeing beelines really frequently and kind of probably over-diagnosing like alveolar interstitial disease. Whereas I was like, I think actually we're probably just better at detecting it than um, the radiograph. So the, that's kind of where it stemmed from. And then um, we, um, everyone who did a point of care uh, with the vet blue protocol were asked to fill in um, uh, a sheet and, um those animals that went on and had to CT, we kind of compared sort of um, location by location on each hemithorax. And we found that um, point of care ultrasound had a high specificity. So, um, you know, if you saw it, it was likely um, to be a true finding on CT for like site-specific alveolar interstitial um, pathology. Um, but, 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 a low sensitivity so um, you could miss it so the sensitivity was only 18%. This criteria was based on three or more beelines um, because in, in people they say a positive sight in, is you know seeing three or more beelines in one on one um, scanning site but you know that's essentially like you're seeing really confluent beelines and um, I think like a human study came out, I think the year that we were, um, when I was when I was writing this up, which um, showed that if you reduced that kind of criteria and said, well, actually look at any beelines, um, you increase your sensitivity. And that's kind of what, what we found in our study that you we improved the ability to detect significant alveolar, um, alveolar interstitial pathology um, on CT if we didn't just say a positive site was um, restricted to three or more B lines. Uh, and so what can you take away from that? Well, I just sort of say that, you know, if you have, um, you know, less than kind of three B lines per site, it may well be a re relevant finding if you have clinical history or, you know, examination findings compatible with parenchymal disease. Um, it was interesting that our specificity, so, you know, we're unlikely to get false positives. Um, the, because of you know the, what I was mentioning about the B lines and the um, and the Z lines, um, and other just finally um, talk about this study study all day. But um, other interesting finding was that we did find consolidation in two of the three animals that had it on um, CT, and we also identified um, an intrathoracic mass which. It's not really been reported, you know, in your point of care. It makes sense, you know, if you put the scanner on the chest and there's a mass in there, then you're going to be able to see it. But um, 
I think clinically that's very useful. You know, if we if we see an animal that's you know dyspneic, it's got this kind of asynchronous breathing pattern that may be suggestion of pleural space disease, and we see this um, you know a mass like um, structure, then you know that um, already at that point your uh, approach is going to have to change slightly. You know, there's no quick fix to that. And so you're going to have to, you know, think about um, advanced imaging, referring for advanced imaging um, earlier rather than sort of, you know, sitting an in, in animal in, in oxygen, just kind of waiting to um, waiting to chill out because that mass you can't get rid of quickly. Um, that's an interesting point from that. Can I, can I ask with the, um, uh, when, when you got people to do this, like who, who were the, uh, well, not who were the people that don't want necessarily their names. I assume it wasn't all you, but how was there, did you look at, um, I suppose the variability in, in people's, um, uh, use of the VEPLU protocol, or do you think it was that they had sufficient training to make sure that everyone was, was, was pretty competent and consistent? Yeah, um, that was, um, it would have been, we, we did do training. So I, essentially I did um, a um, lecture, but like so didact didactic and um, some kind of practical training um, to kind of the emergency um, clinicians. So it was kind of interns, uh, residents, and maybe the occasional um, faculty member that um, performed the um, the protocol. But, you know, again, that was probably one of the other major limitations of the study that, you know, well, it's not real life me just doing them all you know yes but that would be great because then you don't have that inter observer variability um but yes how we we you know we gave training but how stand you know the training wasn't standardized you know there wasn't any kind of assessment there wasn't kind of you know proof of sort of um competency so there is um and on the other thing is we don't have the you know the recordings of the images to kind of check what they are documenting is was actually truly seen on the image by you know kind of in well, independent kind of verification and and so would you would you if you were going to repeat the study what would you actually do differently so i think that um i with regards to this kind of time lane between ct i just don't think that well i guess we could just say right should we uh point of care ultrasound just at the point of going to um to ct um but I definitely, I think it would change with regards to, um, you know, the people performing the um, the point of care ultrasound that, and, and it's an area of like, you know, interest of mine is kind of that kind of trying to standardize the, um, standardize the, the approach, you know, so sort of training course to really, you know, show that, um, you know, a bit like you kind of, you know, recover, you know, CPR. So it's like, okay, yes, we've all had experience with CPR, but these are kind of um, this is the way that um, evidence base um, suggests it should be performed. This is what we want you, um, you to uh, be competent in, and you have to kind of you know do the kind of online um, um, online training course to then get your little certificate, and then you have to um, you know you have to renew that and um, repeat complete the course again. So I think that that's a kind of important focus for any kind of ultrasound study going forward is yeah who's performing it what is their level of competency and how are you defining kind of competency 
Yeah, I suppose we can think about that for for a number of different um, uh, areas as well. Or what we do. So, so with with pokers itself, do you, do you do you think it, it alone can be used to diagnose some of these emerging conditions that we see? So I think that it's um, you have to be very careful with the word diagnose because it's you know I think it's a really useful tool, and it you know it can help it can help me rapidly diagnose, for example, a pericardial effusion. But you know, it's detecting pericardial effusion that's not the that's not the end of the um, conversation. Um, I'm rarely, I yes, occasionally, maybe you could see a cardiac mass, but I rarely, and I don't actively go looking, you know, like really properly looking for a um, a cardiac mass, you know, I know roughly, you know, um, uh, where we um, we may find one, you know, the humangius sarc, um, but only if it's in that area will I um, be able to see it. If it's not there, then I'm not going to like position the animal, maneuver it, clip it to try and find it. I just need to know I've got pericardial effusion. I need to act on that. And the same with pleural fluid. You know, I can readily detect that, but I don't know the cause. I have to in- interpret it in light of our history, physical exam, um, and your know, thracosentesis. Thank you. And um, so... Do, I suppose do, do, do you have any any sort of final sort of thoughts about sort of pokers and and how can individuals get better at at getting themselves sort of up to up to scratch and also I, I think it's very much my experience I was speaking about when we spoke about pokers sort of before was was um, these these lines or these things that you're looking at you quite often you need someone to actually sort of point point them out um so so how do how do how does one get better and and do you think that the the future does have some standardization on that and probably you know maybe maybe even a um what are our, our medicine colleagues doing with that and i imagine standardization has um uh, lots of benefits but also some um issues with it as well mm, yeah i think this um i definitely feel like um the hard thing you know about saying was there one you know one kind of protocol that you use and and i think that's tricky because it all comes down to sort of individual clinical question um but i think kind of the the real like focus and where i think that it benefits getting that kind of real time kind of feedback is about the sort of you know image quality and how do you optimize your image to make the um to get the best um to get the answers of your clinical question and um, I think that's a particularly uh, important part of training is having someone saying hey you know just you know change this bit here get you know show your your pulmonary line really nicely before you do anything else and those little tidbits will then optimize your image quality to that because what they found in the studies looking at training um, uh, particularly I think it was an interesting one where it was like a cardiac um, scanning they found that most you know p- participants after like a six-hour training session were good at identifying you know the effusion the pericardial effusion left atrium size but they still were unable to recognize a um, poor quality study and so I think that's really interesting because the first part of you making a um, you need to have an appropriate image to make the right, um, to be able to interpret it properly. Um, And so I think that's one really important part of kind of having that um, real-time feedback training. Um, So kind of going on to that, what would I advise people who want want to learn is um, 
I would say have a go because lots of vets I speak to on the phone and, and when they're asking for advice about a case, I'm like, you know, have you, have you put the scanner on the chest? And like, oh no, um, I'm not very good with the ultrasound. But for me, I'm not saying um, where some people, um, you know, go the other way where they put the point of care ultrasound on and they haven't even, you know, auscultated the chest. I don't want to go that far, but I'm thinking as point of care as being the extension of your physical exam. So, um, you know, if you auscultate and you hear um, dull lung sounds and you're, but you're unsure, you're like, are they dull? I don't know. You put your scanner on, you see kind of anechoic fluid. Well, that's just help you support um, your um, diagnosis of a pleural fluid. And Putting it on, interpreting it, but don't wholly rely just on your point of care findings. So if you're thinking it's got a pneumothorax based on your clinical exam and history, your point of care doesn't prove that, then I would be in favour of what the majority says rather than your point of care. Um, And then, you know, making sure you kind of save loops and like video or even just, you know, I've got loads of videos on my on my phone of me videoing an ultrasound machine um i know obviously it's not very good for kind of lecture quality which i'm realizing now but it kind of just helped make me document it at the time so then i could share with a colleague um you know at a later date to kind of um learn from and you know like seeking advice from your various colleagues that may be you know advanced certificate holders or um you know specialists that you may um, know who can really help you interpret it and it may be they say you know what i can't interpret it from that because your image quality is not very good that's something that you can work with because going forward you could be like okay i need to what did i how did i get my image then and what do i need to improve to make this of kind of diagnostic quality and and, and maybe sort of just going getting back a bit to what we can use this for do you, do you think that um uh, point of care ultrasound helps differentiate sort of cardiac and non-cardiac causes of of um, of dyspnea. So I think um, that again is something that's um, super uh, interesting. Why just because I think it highlights the difference between dogs and cats. Um, and this these are based on kind of studies I think that's come out in the last couple of years where. Um, you know, and I think I may have like touched on it briefly before that in um, dogs with respiratory signs, point of care ultrasound didn't significantly affect the ability to differentiate between cardiac and non-cardiac causes of respiratory distress compared to your history and physical exam. And that kind of makes sense, you know, like you said, if you've got your cavity, it's got a murmur, then you're, you know, you could have, um, and now it's dyspneic, you could very well have um, make a case for congestive heart failure and, you know, start diuretic therapy earlier without the need for spending time to do point of care ultrasound. Whereas um, a similar study in cats, uh, and again, I think because cats just like to, um, you know, hide their um, hide their feelings and their their clinical signs, that they um, clinicians who were who were trained in in assessing uh, left atria. To, um, HMJ auto size it improved, had improved accuracy and detection of cardiac cause of respiratory distress compared to um, physical examination and history alone. Um, so yeah, I think it. I think if everything's pointing to um, respiratory distress because of cardiac origin, and you know your your scanners, you know the other side of the 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 practice, it takes ten minutes to turn on, you know treat treat the patient in front of you um based on the information you have um and 
you're, you know, you'd be pretty much probably right if it's a dog. And um, yeah, and cats are just generally a little bit more tricky. Fair, fair enough. I always think that cats have a different physiology base than uh, than, than dogs, and maybe maybe people as well. Um, and um, we, we, we spoke a bit about sort of training and standardisation sort of before, but there's there's a, a, an increase, isn't there, in the, <clears throat> in the literature both of, uh, for pokers and related to people, but also um, in in dogs and cats and where do you where do you kind of like see this sort of going that where where does pokers become um more like advanced imaging or the questions that we're asking are 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 too advanced or does that depend on the technology or you think the um the 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 skill if you like or the the learned skill of the of the person using the using the probe so when does it become too much or over interpretation yeah i mean it's a a really good point because i'd say that i'm i'm pretty you know okay at performing point of care ultrasound i'd say that it's like an area of my um uh you know an area i'd I'd say i'm i'm pretty it's hard in there pretty good at it like you know i can i'm pretty good at point of care ultrasound but i would say i've never i was never a particularly um i never performed a lot of abdominal ultrasound or echocardiography in practice like so i'm and I just know how to get answer key clinical questions and I and that's what I think you have to really keep at saying I'm I'm using this to ask a clinical question and I think when some people are probably kind of veering off into trying to make it into something that it's not it's like you know you're trying to get nitty-gritty and do your measurements and like do your measurements of your LEO or like do your fractional shortening like in you know in in the kind of sternal recumbency, not in, you know, not in the um, the right position, not clipped, we're really unlikely to get that perfect view to get a, um, a, a accurate um, LEO um, measurement. So I'm just about subjectively kind of, uh, you know, eyeballing it and saying, you know, subjectively uh, normal or, you know, uh, plump or, you know, I can fit two aortas in my left atrium. Um, and the same with kind of assessing um, systolic um, function. You know, I don't do fractional shortening. Um, I'm just eyeballing it. And um, because, again, the view you need to get, you know, you really need to perfectly um, slice that kind of mushroom you get in your kind of short axis um, view. And if you're off, then you can get, you know, a, an inaccurate result um and so you know like so what i'm trying to say is i i think and again this is my own um personal opinion as i I don't you're kind of moving away from kind of emergency point of care ultrasound if you're trying to like get these kind of perfect images and do all these measurements like all you need to know is like aren't um you need just answers to key clinical questions. So, so we shouldn't we shouldn't um, uh, over you know overuse it, I suppose, and we just better refine answering those sort of uh, answering those questions um, would would benefit more. So, so Laura, if, if I'm wanting to up, upskill and and um, and get better at poker, so have, have an ultrasound and practice that hopefully um, is is um, mobile enough to to use of these sort of patients. So, what what advice? do you give about how you can um educate yourself or, or learn because obviously there's papers out there but they, don't, they they might describe techniques but not necessarily uh i suppose you translate to, to easy to to you know doing that skill or practicing that skill yeah and i think this um this is where there's kind of uh, a little bit of a um 
uh, well, something that we're you know trying to ho- help improve. So we've got the kind of veterinary emergency and critical care ultrasound society, um, which um, we you know we did some online um, lectures um, in collaboration with Evex last year, and hoping once Evex is you know back in person that um, it'll be kind of like a day day kind of conference with practical sessions because I think that. Um, you know, all the kind of human literature, you know, says nothing really beats kind of hands on like practical training um, because, you know, really to kind of help with those um, with those motor skills. And then you can kind of get that real time feedback. So, you know, um, and, and I and I think when I see, you know, with students, um, you know, in, in on rotations, like they can understand the theory of it. They can recognize stuff, but it's actually, you know, getting the probe in their hand and seeing what image they're going to get by putting the probe on the um on the skin you know and saying okay oh no i need a bit more um spirit i need a bit more gel i need to adjust my depth i need to just fan my probe a bit to get my optimize my image and these little things you can't you can't really get so much yeah from a textbook or um or uh you know um even sort of um even kind of videos um and like you know youtube's got quite a lot of you know stuff available on there um that kind of talk you through that the steps but trying to we're hoping you know as uh, well i guess you know that um as rvc as well like to provide that sort of practical training we're providing some i did a kind of teaching session with um, um students not that long ago and the interesting thing i found in that teaching session is that i used a old equine scanner that they told me you know was useless it didn't it was um you know they couldn't see anything and yeah we i can have a go but you know it's probably not gonna be good enough and it worked perfectly fine for what we were using it for you know identifying the um you know the the pulmonary pleural line um the a lines and the kind of the shadowing of the ribs either side um as well as the heart so you don't need um, a fancy machine um you kind of get kind of practicing and yes even better if you've got someone with you who's um feels comfortable with the technique and you know we hope as a as a sort of you know university and um as a kind of veterinary society that in the future we can provide more um opportunities for kind of practical hands-on training yeah i think i think it's good and, and do, you, do you think standardization because i think in, in people that you have to um have a have a ticket don't you to say that you can do this to assess x or y and and um do you think that's a, be- a benefit or that's a way we, we might go yeah i think that's definitely on the um, one of the long longer term goals and i think you know, kind of raise a point that if we're making clinical decisions based on this scan we want to know that that person making that decision is you know competent so in in an emergency uh human emergency medicine yeah they have an ultrasound kind of curriculum and then you know they i think it's like I think it's like um, some of them are like 36 months of training and then they have to kind of pass an exam to say, I am competent at this. Um, but what they then found is like a year after their um, training, they de-skilled and they couldn't pass the exam. So it's so many things, um, hurdles, because you have to be like, OK, if we're using this and making clinical decisions from this, we need to have like adequate records to show that you know what we're acting on because it's easy to say oh well i saw this and this is why i've done this but you're like but then there's no there's no record of that and especially if it changes you know 12 24 hours later so really trying to kind of save um videos and images um especially if you are making um clinical decisions and um, based on them and then yes what we'd hope to kind of go towards is saying well 
what is it that we we think that at various kind of stages within your uh, your career, you should be uh, proficient at your levels of competency in different areas of point of care ultrasound. That's kind of first stage. And the second stage is like, okay, how do we assess your degree of uh, competency? And then how do we monitor that you're retaining that as well? So, so Laura, if we're going to have a conversation in five years' time um, about pokers, hopefully we'll, we'll get you on um, to have a chat about something else in the, in the meantime. Who knows where we'll be in five years' time as well. But um, if we were going to do that, where, where do you think things are are going is it more refinement of what's going on at the moment or do you think it will go in in different directions i think that um for me the clinical questions we can ask from point of care ultrasound i think we've i think we've got the majority of them i think we need to you know be careful not to try and like you said kind of cross that boundary into you know being um you know um, a cardiologist or an ultrasonographer um I think more um, where it will go is yeah thinking about how do we because most of us have kind of you know been taught by um, kind of colleagues in kind of an informal setting and uh, more kind of progressing towards yeah how how do we kind of standardize some sort of you know training program that then um, then it means that we can we can re- reliably say you know this person who is making this decision based on this point of care ultrasound is in a position to um to do this thank you very much so laura do you have any um other things you think we we um should have uh, brought up during this chat no no i think um i said i could talk about it talk about it all day but i will uh, i'll stop there <laughs> thank you very much so so thank you so much for your, your time uh laura always always great to uh, to talk to you and, and joining brian and myself on the on the podcast so we'll we'll wrap it up there um thank you to for listening as well so don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device and that way you don't even worry about missing a podcast leave us a five-star review please on apple podcast Acast. that would be great don't forget to tell your friends vet friends any any friends we, we don't care we're, we're welcome into our show and we'll play some show notes as uh, laura suggested there's a, a few things in particular that you want to include in the obviously pages so if you just type in obviously clinical podcast into your search engine of choice it should be double the tree if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.